0: Angela, Brent, let's play a game. Oh, boy. I'm game. I'm going to read you a quote from a movie, and you're going to guess the movie. I love this game.
1: I can already tell you I'm going to lose. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, okay. There's no winners or losers here. I just want to kind of illustrate a point. Okay, ready? Yes. Okay. I'm going to make him an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> the
1: Godfather. Godfather
0: all right good okay let's try there's no place like home oh dorothy and the wizard of Oz.
1: Yep.
2: go ahead make my day the terminator i was biting my <laughs> tongue but was that right no it was not right friends
0: <laughs> it hey, wasn't right no dirty harry yes dirty harry clint
2: eastwood wait dirty that harry. wasn't terminator
1: no. no why did i think that was terminator
2: it's Terminator-esque. Mm. Same same bravado, I guess. I don't know. Here's one. Hasta la vista, baby. There, that's yours, Brent.
1: Oh, Terminator. There we go. <laughs> that was the Terminator. Okay. Yes.
0: yes, it was. So do you know why I wanted to play this little game?
1: I actually have no idea.
0: <laughs> but I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite time of the year. It's summer movie season.
2: Oh, yeah. It's the most wonderful time of the year.
0: Yes, especially for someone like me. I love movies. I watch Mm. movies all the time. They have important meaning to me. And for many people, they have a lot of significance, a lot of cultural significance even. Movies can transcend different cultures and different languages even. There's so much to be said about how film kind of connects us all together
1: connects us all and also like helps us understand ourselves.
0: Yes, it's a powerful tool. Very. So I wanted to talk today about data science and filmmaking.
1: I mean, that's interesting because I don't typically think of data science and movies together.
0: I understand that. And it even feels kind of sterile or kind of lacking in creativity Mm -hmm. to talk about data and film. But I'm happy to tell you that there are some amazing ways that data science can inform the movies we watch.
1: Really? Okay. well, what do you have for us? Let's do it. This is Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat. We're your hosts. I'm Brent Simino. And I'm Angela Andrews. We're here to break down questions from the tech industry. Big, small, and, well, sometimes strange. Each episode, we go out in
2: search of answers from redheaders and people they're connected to.
1: In today's episode, how does data science shape what we see in movies?
0: Producer Kim Wong is here to help us out. First, I spoke with Madeline Donato president and CEO of the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media. She was kind enough to speak with me, and she has a lot of experience with data science and filmmaking. She says data science is important in the Institute's work. Data has always been the
3: key for us in terms of raising awareness, identifying unconscious bias in content, and also using it for advocacy. So we are a data-driven advocacy group. And we have found that that has been the best way for us to have a dialogue in a way that is not defensive. Having the data, it's the facts. It's not opinion. It's not theory. And it has really helped us not only make the case, the social imperative, the business imperative, but also has allowed us to measure progress.
1: Wait, Kim, so tell us about the Institute.
0: The Institute was founded in the early 2000s by actress Gina Davis. I'm mm. sure a lot of people know who she is. Oh, yeah. Yep. And they conduct studies and research to address the biases and what we see on screen and foster more inclusion in media.
1: Oh, so they're really interested in like representation on the screen. And so they're trying to do this in a quantitative way. So they're having people watch these films and then tally up. Yep. Like, who's on screen and how much they're speaking. Is that right?
0: Yes,
2: exactly. That's interesting. This does sound like this is prime for some sort of data science, because the way that you just explained it, it really says we're looking at data points. Right. And how do we add those data points up? And to your point, when humans are doing it, that has its own bias. But let's be clear. Machines are built by humans. That's true. And that does also, in turn, there is bias inherently in those as well.
1: Indeed.
0: Yes. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later on, because I'm glad you brought that up. In 2013, the Gina Davis Institute was approached by Google. Together, they wanted to see if machine learning could help them dig deeper in research.
3: And together, we developed what became GDIQ, which, hmm, what does the GD stand for out there? It's Gina Davis' Inclusion quotient. <laughs> and essentially what it allowed us to do is identify not only how many female characters there were on screen, but their screen and speaking time. And that was something that could not be measured by humans accurately. So GDIQ is a hybrid methodology. So it it combines machine learning. And also we have a team of human expert coders that provide the other dimensions that we look at in terms of race, ethnicity, LGBTQIA, disabilities, age 50 plus, you know, and body type.
1: So what did they find out?
0: It's one thing, right, if you have a bunch of people or even an algorithm there to kind of process how many people are on screen at one time or how many people are speaking or who they're Mm -hmm. speaking to even, right? What you want is kind of a robust picture. Mm -hmm. So you have human kind of like expert analysts alongside a sophisticated algorithm that was built specifically to count speaking time, amount of being seen on camera from, you know, for your face and not just your body, for example, the different people who are speaking, how old are they? What do they look like? How are they dressed? When we looked at female
3: characters from 2016 to 2020, we saw that female character screen time increased by 8.4% and female character speaking time increased by 7%. So it's one thing to count how many female characters there are. It's another thing when you're looking at a screen, it's like, do they have the same presence as their male counterparts? And all of that has been possible because of having the GDIQ.
0: So the introduction of data science and machine learning for the Gina Davis Institute strengthened the case that so many people have made for decades. Movies have a lot of problems with representation. It's
2: interesting that this institute kind of took this on because since the beginning of movie making, Mm -hmm. when characters weren't even played by the same race or the same Mm -hmm. gender, there was so much misrepresentation in movies. And now we've come to 2022 and we're hearing that, yes, it is making improvements and those improvements are happening very incrementally. We all see it. We all know it. Every TV show that we turn on, and especially if you're in the minority, Mm -hmm. you really feel it because you never see yourself. You don't hear yourself, but you're always consuming this content that is never representative of who you are.
1: Yeah, that is so true. I mean, I remember some of the first times that I saw like a queer person on screen. Mm. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like I, I can't tell you how transformative that was for me.
2: Mm. I believe it. I believe it. Yeah, totally. You know, I'm speaking for myself and probably speaking for Kim. Those things happen to us as well. Yes.
1: Well, like she was saying earlier, like having this data helps us have, I think, conversations that are grounded in fact and not just like assertions, because so often these types of conversations can get overheated in some ways.
0: For sure. Yeah. Yes.
1: And they turn out to be not productive.
0: Exactly.
1: Kim, help us out here, though. So we're talking about how data science can help in the creation of films. But it sounds like the work that they're doing is analyzing films that already exist. What's the connection there?
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I was also curious. And turns out that Madeline had a lot to say about that. When we started
3: socializing GDIQ back in 2014 or 2015, it works on audio and video, and it's a great product, but it's been used more as an auditing tool. Mm. It's not something that is being used for the most part during the creative process, and it's a great way to measure change. We were really looking for an intervention. How can we be preventative? How can we help our partners be able to assess content before they move into the creative process of casting, of producing? And our partners, uh, led by Dr. Sri Narayan at the Sale Laboratory at USC Viterbi, have a patented text tool, IP. And Gina and I approached them and said, we want to create Spellcheck for Bias. What is
2: Spellcheck for Bias?
3: Spellcheck for Bias is a combined methodology where it is led by our research department and also incorporates some machine learning into it. And it's a way for us to look at who is showing up and how are they showing up. For the most part, most writers don't describe every single character that is contributing to dialogue. That's just script writing 101. So this allows us to examine all the characters that are contributing dialogue in a show, in a movie, and it's a way for us to organize them and also walk them through these six dimension tests. So we look at gender, we look at race, ethnicity, we look at disability, we look at age, we look at body type, we look at LGBTQIA. And it's a way to very quickly assess the type of characters that are in a script and if they're organized or described. And it allows the creative people to get an easy assessment and then decide what they would like to do without invading the storyline, without invading the authentic truth
2: of the story and the storyteller. So, this spell check for bias is actually an application that runs through a script. Yes. And it uses the dimension tests to look at the characters and all of the biases that could be in there. Mm. And I just think that's pretty interesting. Like
0: mm.
2: like she said in here, we're not going to go in here and mess with the story, but we're looking at the script and we're saying, okay, okay, This is what you have. Does this look right to you? Like, I I mean, I guess that's probably the question because it's something that's it's an audit and it's not very preventative. And if you do it this way, it becomes a more preventative process. And it's like, oh, we're we're skewing too far the other way. And it could be totally unintentional. But Mm -hmm. until you bring these issues up again and again, they tend to get overlooked. So this is kind of cool that you get to know these things before You start shooting, you know, and you can kind of fix them.
1: Yeah, she's right. Like so many times tools like this are used for auditing purposes. Mm -hmm. And I love that flip to say, like, how can they also use them for like generative purposes? Like, how can they help us create better work, not just assess work better?
0: Yes, exactly. Madeline says the ultimate goal the Institute has with all of the work that it's doing is to show equal representation on screen that's comparable with real-life populations. But if I could play devil's advocate for a second, movies aren't real. Why do we have to see on screen what we see in real life? People like Madeline believe that what we talked about earlier on the show is true. Movies have a significant impact on culture. And a fantasy world is an escape, but it also has only a few personal stakes, if that, for a person who's watching it. Challenging our biases within that environment could be easier than trying to do so in real life. We're talking about fiction.
3: We're talking about the world of make-believe. So clearly, unless there is something factual from history, there's no reason why in the 21st century we shouldn't be a parody now. I mean, parity should be the low-hanging fruit, not even something we want to ascend to. So our goal is to really at least achieve, you know, parity and then go beyond it. Oh, Hopefully, we'd love to be out of business. <laughs> That's the ultimate, that is the ultimate goal.
1: <laughs> why do you think the film industry is taking inclusion so seriously? Like, why now?
0: Well, Madeline says it's just as much about business sense as it is about common sense. Mm. There's the social imperative,
3: which we've been talking to a lot, but there is a commercial and business imperative. And we have found that when you have diverse content that has leads and co-leads that are representative of BIPOC and
0: many other groups, it will make more money
1: put my people on screen we can make you money exactly <laughs>
0: exactly and it's not just conjecture either a study that the institute conducted in 2015 examined the highest grossing movies of that year they found that movies with female leads grossed 15.8% more than ones with male huh. and movies with both male and female leads grows 23.5% more than movies Mm. with just one or the other gender in the lead.
1: Wow.
2: That is the pockets right there. That's literally proof positive.
0: This matters. Yeah. So there are tons of papers and reports that I could cite, that they all paint a similar picture. Data science is helping to make that picture more vivid and more actionable. Mm. But there are ways that data can inform the production process as well. I wanted to know more about how data can affect the technology of modern cinema. This time, I wanted to know more about data science and the production process. Mm. After a long search and a lot of emailing people, (laughs) I found James Blevins. He works in post-production on a number of different shows and projects, the majority of which he could not tell me about because of NDA. But just to give you an idea about the type of projects that he works on.
4: Most recently, I was the post-production supervisor on a show called The Mandalorian, and that's sort of the latest feather in the cap.
2: What? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Okay.
1: Um What what is Mandalorian?
2: <laughs> oh gosh. It is everything, Brent.
0: It is everything. <laughs> Brent, it is a Star War.
1: Oh, it's a Star War. Okay.
0: With quite possibly the cutest fictional character in recent memory. Oh. But before he could bring Baby Yoda into our homes and our hearts.
1: Oh, that's where Baby Yoda comes from.
0: Yes. Grogu. Oh. James spent four Four and a half years at Netflix. Okay. Just as it was beginning to roll out its original programming. But in the short time that James was at Netflix, the company scaled its original programming from eight shows to 600 wow. properties. What?
1: A year. Yeah, they went from like Orange is the New Black and House of Cards to like all kinds of stuff and like no time flat.
4: Yes. <laughs> wow. We really sort of shattered our own expectations. I think after about my my third year there, I started changing the way I approached my work by saying, well, 600 originals. You know what? There are people who work on 600 things a year all over the place. You know, it's really just 600 things. And you just sort of need to wrap your head around that this is really not that difficult. If you can just move your own internal decimal point and start thinking about these <laughs> things is it's not, oh my God, it's six hundred things. it's it's only six hundred things.
1: oh, oh, just move your decimal point,
2: <laughs> okay. Is that how we're doing that now? Got you. What a mindset I
1: wish
0: on my best day. How do you move from six to sixty to six hundred? How does that scale happen? Yeah. Mm, Good question. And when I asked James about how Netflix uses data to scale up their production to that extent, he was very (laughs) tight-lipped. It's kind of secret sauce of Netflix and other streaming services as well, right? So he couldn't say very much, but he did illustrate something really important about how Netflix realized that the power of transforming its service lied in its own data. The data that it had that was being generated by its own customers at the time hmm. and how valuable that was.
4: I think what became really clear was the differentiator between what was sort of widely understood and published information. And then there was the data that you owned yourself and, uh, you know, one could become one's own Nielsen. Mm. And that was amazing to watch and how it affected deal making.
2: So to be clear, he's talking about Netflix becoming their own Nielsen rating service, meaning they have the data of what their customers are watching yep. and they can use that to scale and see where the wind is blowing. Yeah,
0: Right. And that's kind of become, I think, a business model for a lot of streaming services since then. But Netflix was the first in that space. Data is king.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're sitting on a whole mine of first party data mm. like you have a lot of that data already what do you need nielsen right. for <laughs> you know like what exactly
0: when we think of big budget films the ones that are coming to theaters and streaming services in the next few months it's easy to think of big workstations high powered computers that render special effects james says that all of that is about to change
4: and we, we really shouldn't care about whether or not we have a fast enough box on our desktop. We should just wonder whether or not we have access to compute. Yeah. Right. And know how much compute we need. And there's a whole economy around all of that that's happening right now. Well, I think when you're talking data, you're talking about compute.
0: Bingo. Yes. And where is that compute increasingly finding itself, Angela? In the cloud. That's right. So that's
2: why we're not worrying about those big old clunky workstations and everyone had to do their rendering. No, it's a service now. Just Mm. offload it. That's right. And you still keep moving forward. So you're not bogged down. I love that how we're tying all of these little tech threads together. I love how we do this in this show.
1: Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think about the transition from physical film to digital filmmaking and then I guess there's a lot higher quality of filmmaking now in terms of like 4k and like HD.
0: Some of the issues with filmmaking do have relationships with translating them into high def HD and then from HD to 4K movies, especially ones made using an older technology, were simply not made to be seen on our very new, very crisp screens Mm -hmm. that we look at movies with now at home. So in post-production, people like James use machine learning to scale up visuals.
4: So I use those types of things like taking material that was at HD and bringing it up to 4K standards, using those kind of machine learning algorithms, sort of like a no brainer. They were also looking at a world where all of your televisions are about to get really bright and really big. And turns out that the DPs of the world, when they were shooting, they did not expect this to be where their show was going to be um, presented to the audience. Their hero was a Dolby Vision theater, right? But even those Dolby Vision theaters are beginning to run things at 48 frames per second. I don't think I understand this. <laughs> okay. can, can you help me out?
2: Yeah, you're
0: going to have to bring this back down. Sure. DPs are directors of photography, what we know as cinematographers. In film, they're responsible for making sure that the visuals are exactly what the director is looking for, that everything on screen looks the way it's supposed to look.
1: And I think what he's saying is that like films that were made previously,
0: mm-hmm. they're
1: meant to be shown in a theater on a screen. But that's not necessarily how we're watching these movies anymore.
0: Right. I'll let James explain and I'll come in a little bit after to kind of put some context down. But a lot of that has to do with how frame rate shows up in a movie theater is very different than how it shows up on your screen at home.
4: And the reason is because the manufacturers don't want people to look at the movies, the great premiere pieces of content today, and see all of this judder. And when you bring the contrast up and brightness up, you'll begin to see things that you never saw before and will make the DP squirm, which is this sort of latent imaging that sort of your brain can't quite get rid of the old image and, and bring in the new. When you're looking at something really bright and high contrast, it's sort of kind of burned into the back of your ocular system. And so you'll begin to see sort of this uncomfortable judder. Uncomfortable jitter.
0: Yes. Sometimes in older films, On HD screens, you'll see kind of jittery outlines around shapes and moving objects. That's what he means when he says judder. Oh, okay. So
2: how else are they using data science?
0: So data science already has a place in helping production technology keep pace with advancements in screen resolution, for example. What else?
4: We had this unpleasant uh, experience in some of the more premier products of people tried to watch things running at very high frame rates, and it looked too video-ish, yeah. right? There was that weird, overly clear soap opera effect. Yep. Well, it turns out that if you compute the edge of every object in something with a lot of samples, say something that was shot at 48 frames per second or even 120 frames per second, if you analyze that material then you can then choose what your shutter angle is going to be in post and add the proper amount of blur that is to your satisfaction. And so some of this work is being done today and that will result in probably a master at 48 frames per second. And so all of us are sort of preparing for a world where creatives turn to the streamers of the world and say, hey, I thought you were uh, filmmaker-friendly. The theaters are showing our stuff at 48 FPS. And we made a scene-by-scene calculation about how we wanted our motion grade to look in post. Uh, What about you guys doing that for us? And so I think that conversation is about to happen. That will require quite a bit of compute and quite a bit of, I mean, nothing insurmountable, a day's worth of compute on some, you know, uh, right now those solutions are in boxes in rooms, but those could easily be up in the cloud.
0: So do you want me to break this down a little bit, please? Yeah,
4: I'm, I'm
1: going to need that. <laughs>
0: All right. So what James is saying when he's talking about the compute, where he's talking about doing scene-by-scene calculations, streaming services, Hulu, Netflix, Apple TV, et cetera, they can present films and TV shows running at too high of a frame rate, while the industry standard is much lower and gives that kind of cinematic visual to it that people are used to and that directors and creators want. Machine learning and data science can do scene-by-scene calculations and help render these films at that industry standard for streaming services without too much human intervention, i.e. a lot of post-production work. So that's how people get to see the movies that we want to see on these devices in a way that we're supposed to see them.
1: So, Kim, let's pull this all together. So our question for today's episode was how does data science shape what we see in movies? So what's the answer?
0: It already does shape a lot of what we see on screen in a lot of ways that are kind of unexpected and are actually really exciting. I feel like the attitude of data being in film or being a part of the creative process makes people kind of hesitate a bit. So. There's a lot of sources of data, of information, for people to use more than ever before, especially if you're making movies. It can be generated by other platforms, like social media platforms, or you can even buy from vendors like Nielsen. It can be captured at the source if you have your own streaming platform, like streaming services that we have now that use complex data sets to present their customers with what they want when they want it. Also, it takes a lot of work to bring these films to life only for the experience of seeing them to become inconsistent if we want to, say, stream it at home or watch it on that brand new 4K TV. Data science can help us give those cinematic moments back to viewers and help cinematographers and directors present their exact vision, agnostic of where or how we're watching it. Integrating data science does not have to feel sterile. It can empower independent creators, making things for undiscovered audiences. It can help visually present movies in line with the creator's vision. It can also help curb biases of which stories get created and which go untold. And it can help address those biases that affect who we see on camera and who is behind the camera as well. And those are all good things. Indeed. I love how this episode
2: kind of ties in with so many of our previous episodes. And it's amazing to see just the advances that data science and technology as a whole is doing for the film industry. It's only making it better and more inclusive. And that does it for this episode of Compiler.
1: Today's episode was produced by Kim Wong and Caroline Craighead. Victoria Lawton always tells us to do good because doing good is good business.
2: Mm-hmm. Our audio engineer is Christy Chan. Special thanks to Sean Cole. Our theme song was composed by Mary Ann Chetta.
1: A big thank you to our guests, Madeline DiNano and James Blevins. Our
2: audio team includes Lee Day, Stephanie Wunderlich, Mike Esser, Laura Barnes, Claire Allison, Nick Burns, Aaron Williamson, Karen King, Boo Boo House, Rachel Ertel, Mike Compton, Ocean Matthews, and Laura Walters.
1: If you like today's episode, please follow us, rate the show, and leave a review. It really does help us out.
2: We love that you listen and keep on listening. (laughs) Bye, everybody.
1: All right.